You know, I think there are a lot of people who kind of avoid their own mind by just staying ridiculously busy. And I, unfortunately, what that's going to lead to very clearly is burnout. You know, so being able to be brave enough to just sit with your mind is a very, very important thing. Welcome back to the show. Today, my guest is Charles Goldberg. Charles is a clinical psychotherapist and he specializes in addictions. But what I think really makes Charles so incredibly talented is the way that he's able to talk about mental health in a way that makes it not just interesting, but also enjoyable. Charles is able to provide everyone with a really practical set of tools and skills that helps them get through anxious moments and stressful times, and I think you'll find them very useful. This was a wonderful conversation for me, and I know you'll love it. Enjoy. Hey everyone, real quick before we dive into the episode, you probably heard about this podcast directly from someone else or saw it shared on social media. We can only grow, spread our message further, and keep bringing in awesome and amazing guests with your help. If you could take five seconds and hop on whatever podcast platform you're using and leave us a review, it would mean the world to us. On to the show. Charles Goldberg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, man. It's great to be here. Dude, I'm really excited to get into this. So full disclosure for everybody, Charles is my personal therapist. And yep. while I believe that 20 years ago, that might have been a little bit weird, um, I think that now it uh, it just speaks to to my hope that we can all further normalize getting a therapist. I, I say all the time, actually, that like only crazy people don't have therapists. I mean, if you think about it, the the whole point of therapy is to be able to like have someone to talk to, vent, bounce ideas off of. Um, I, I, for the life of me, have never understood why this entire idea of like, you know, putting our mental health first is stigmatized. I mean, I don't know about you. The first time I ever went to see a therapist myself, um, my parents were taking me when I was a teenager as a punishment. And that, that's bonkers to me. Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's it. You're being bad. We're going to punish you. with. That's so funny because it's, it's we, we try to do the same thing with kids when it comes to exercise. Like, when I was growing up, not that I ever it, – it never turned into anything. But, like, exercise was introduced to me as punishment. Like, because it was – it was, uh, let's, you know, oh, you're going to run laps because you missed that play or we're doing burpees because you missed the block, you know. So uh, that's so funny. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird how people come up with these, uh, you know, healthy things, I guess, but in a very punitive manner. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's really I think it's a fantastic thing that you're taking time and, and making efforts um, to really just kind of, I don't know, destigmatize and normalize um, the process of psychotherapy and talking about what it is that you're going through and uh, and working through some challenges. So, yeah. So the the main reason I wanted to have you on, aside from as I mentioned, normalizing speaking with a therapist regularly, and and I think you know this will promote that message, but um, also to give you a platform because I have found that one of the things you're so good at is giving me really practical tools to that I can then apply to life, you know. And I think this is one of the missed things within therapy. A lot of times is that 
you know, learning is the, the, the essence of having a condition and a behavior and then having the same condition and then applying a new behavior. And I think that to be able to get you know, to the point where you're connecting those dots, like you need real tools and you need someone to hold you accountable to them. So I'm really interested as to like why you wanted to be a therapist in the first place and what drove you to doing this. It's an excellent question. Yeah, honestly, like I said, you know, I went to see a therapist when I was younger. And even though I was kind of a, a disaster in those days, I could tell you that I, I approached therapy with the right intention, meaning I was very honest, I was very open, I was very upfront. And I just felt like I was being met by a person who wasn't really that invested in me. I really felt like they were just collecting a paycheck and enjoying sitting there and, you know, just saying, uh-huh, 42 times. You know, and I, I've actually, I mean, now one of the things that I do um, with all of my clients whenever they begin therapy is I ask them to tell me about a lot of their stories in previous therapeutic um, encounters. And most people have a story about a therapist they just didn't connect with. Um, and because this profession is so heavily dependent upon personality, um, I think it's very easy to find people who just aren't a good fit. And so I got very frustrated with the notion of therapy because ultimately there have been times where I, I turn to people asking for help, looking for guidance, and they shrug their shoulders at me. And I'm, I find that kind of shocking. So I, I believe if a person is seeing a therapist, it is only because they have exhausted every other option. Like they have tried everything that they could think of. Um, you know, either they've done it or they haven't done it long enough. And now they're reaching out for help. So these people are in a state of desperation, you know, like who are we as therapists to deprive them of what it is that they're looking for? Do you typically find a positive correlation between the amount of time someone has not seen a therapist and the amount of things you have to dig through just to get to the core of the problem? You know, it's interesting that you say that. I would say it really depends on a case-to-case -case basis. What I can tell you is there's a very interesting statistic that especially in dealing with couples, right? On average, people will only seek couples counseling when a problem has persisted on average for six years. So, I mean, that to me is unbelievable. And at the end of the day, again, it's a pain to go to see a therapist, you know, especially if you're in a couple, you have to get babysitters, you have to schlep out to an office. And, you know, actually one of the biggest things that's always been a problem in the field of counseling is access. You know, can you access a therapist? And, you know, these days with the advent of telehealth and video therapy, um, that that's really been addressed very well. So I would just say like, there's no excuse. Now, when it comes to people like delaying their need for therapy, I mean, there are many motives as to why people would choose to do that. I think a lot of it is, is that when you are in therapy, you have to take a good hard look at yourself. And I think for a lot of people, that's an uncomfortable process, especially if you're doing this with a stranger who may or may not have your best interests in mind. So I, I really think that the vehicle for people's change that really needs to be most emphasized in a therapeutic relationship is just that the therapeutic relationship um we have to be able and i i told this to you and all my other clients it's really really important that this should feel as much like a friendship as any other relationship if you think about the people who have really motivated you in life um you knew that they had your best intentions in mind and so i i think that when people enter therapy if they're able to look at themselves and if they are willing to engage with their therapist in a very vulnerable and, and honest manner, they're going to have great experiences. But if you're not in that headspace to begin with, it's going to be pretty complicated. Yeah, I feel like that's in part a, a definition or a good definition of a good friend, which is somebody that can hold you accountable and get excited for you when you're doing things right, but also be the one to sit you down when you're doing things wrong. So I, I really like 
that analogy of comparing a good friend to a therapist. Yeah, it's actually very interesting. You know, there's this ancient Jewish book. It's actually probably my favorite book. It's called Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. And it famously says in the book that a, a successful person will always have a friend and a teacher, right? So this concept, and I mean, I, I do believe that what, what attributes to the success of the Jewish people that we have is because we're so heavily invested in seeking guidance. We're so heavily invested in recognizing that we might not have all the answers and that there are people out there who may be able to guide us through these things. But that ultimately requires a lot of humility, which I think for many people is something that they struggle with. Yeah. Absolutely. So, now, yeah. in, in, through all of all the, the conversations that we've had, you know that something that I'm very passionate about mm -hmm. is getting to the mind through the body. And, I, and this is in large part why I do what I do being a coach and ensuring mm -hmm. that people are on the correct path to bettering themselves on a physical level. And I think one of the things that we, so we stress four main pillars in terms of lifestyle outside of fitness, which are hydration, protein, sleep, and stress. And that fourth one, I think people generally don't know what to do with. So I really wanted to have a conversation with you around this because this to me comes off as something that you're incredibly talented in being able to attack and look at objectively and come up with practical solutions. So I, you know, I think it was Socrates said, wisdom begins with the defining of terms. So can we define what stress is? Yeah. I mean, I honestly think that stress is anything that basically challenges a person's status quo, right? So anything that could potentially, um, you know, I'll put it like this, the, the thing that is most intimidating to human beings, and actually I would say this is kind of divided in two sections. On the one hand, I think probably the most intimidating thing to human beings is the concept of change, is the notion of change. And I, I like to keep this very broad because when we think about why people go to therapy nine times out of 10, it's because they're struggling to make a change. But I would also say on the opposite side of that spectrum, it also has to do with acceptance because there are certain things in this world that are very painful to have to accept. And so I think, you know, when we're unable to move in one of those directions, either towards change or towards acceptance, I would say that that's probably the definition of stress. It's, it's that mm. inability to move towards, you know, that type of either change or acceptance. Yeah. And I'm assuming there's probably a lot of nuance as to why the person finds themselves immobile. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely. I mean, honestly, I, I think it could boil down to many different things, but more than anything, what I think it boils down to is frankly, a lack of confidence. You know, let's, let's break down for a second also what confidence is. So a person's confidence is the level of faith that they have in themselves, right? It's their capacity to recognize what they're capable of. And I, I think that there are many times where there are certain changes or certain things we have to accept that are so intimidating to us that the notion of actually approaching those things becomes overwhelming. So I, I would say that when a person lacks confidence in that realm, when they realize there's something I've got to do, but I have no idea how I'm going to do it, lacking that confidence really causes a lot of stress for people. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Like one of the things I think about a lot being an entrepreneur is that you need action before confidence. Like in other words, like action precedes confidence, but action isn't the first thing. Bravery is. So like you have to be brave enough to take action and then through enough action, you breed confidence. How do you tango with yeah, that? I, yeah, I could actually, it's really interesting. You know, I, I love that you said bravery because if we think about it, um, it's very interesting. The word courage um, has the Latin root cur, 
uh, C-O-U-R, which actually means heart. Um, courage is heartedness. So how does that relate? Well, if you think about it, and this is what I think is so important to understand, that what mental health truly is as a, as a whole is authenticity. Meaning when we decide to approach something wholeheartedly with our entire heart, with our entire being, with all our values behind us, and that takes a lot of bravery because ultimately when we behave in that respect, we become very subject to others' judgments. And again, we're doing something for us that's guiding us, which may or may not you know, fly in the face of others' beliefs and opinions. At the same time, I, without that level of bravery, um, you're 100% you're right. There can be no action. There can be no change. There can be no acceptance. So I, I like how you're kind of breaking down the very first step of this from an emotional and psychological aspect of like, we have to get ourselves to be willing to be authentic. We have to convince ourselves that our own authenticity is going to be the guiding light through this process. Yeah, I'd like to double click on that authenticity point, because one of the funny things about it is that you can't fake it. Like you always know. That's the thing with authenticity, right? Like if you're doing the thing or thinking about something in a certain way or not taking action, like literally no one else in the world could have insight as to what you're doing or not doing. But like you always know. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I, I truly believe that the reason why people are born into this world to begin with is basically to make an impact on it, right? So if you think about it, I think there are certain dynamics that each person is attuned to, meaning there is something, there is some problem, there is something in life that every person is able to kind of hone in on. And when you recognize that, because if you think about it, there's a lot of brokenness in the world. There's a lot of dysfunction in the world. And if you've found a problem that you actually have the solution to, I mean, now we're starting to talk about one's life purpose, you know, like that, that's kind of the thing. And if you think about it, that could only come about, like we could only attain our true purpose for living, making that impact. If we're very, very attuned to ourselves and understanding of like how we could be our most authentic self. That's really interesting. Yeah. Now, do you think that having a purpose minimizes stress or allows you to deal with it better? I absolutely. I, I honestly think that when, when, you know, it's very interesting there's a very famous um, book. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. It's written by Viktor Frankl, um, who is one of the world's most famous psychologists. He was a contemporary of Freud. And how he built... Th this book is actually a very interesting book because the first half of the book is about um, Viktor Frankl's experiences in the Holocaust. And then the second half is how he built his theory as a result of that. But namely, what he, he basically discovered is like when he was in the concentration camps, he realized there were two different types of Jews. You had the first group of Jews where their families were murdered. Everything they had was taken from them. Their communities were decimated. And they said, well, you know, you beat me. You know, like if you've taken all this stuff from me, like what do I have to live for anymore? Whereas there was yet another group of Jews who basically their families were murdered. Everything they had was taken from them. Their communities were decimated. But they said, I'm not letting these guys take me down. I, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to tell this story. I have a purpose. I have, I have meaning. And in his bo book, he very famously quotes uh, Frederick Nietzsche, who says, and listen to this, this is such a brilliant quote. He says, for he who has a reason why, the how becomes far less difficult, mm. right? It's a very powerful statement. For he who has a reason why, the how becomes far less difficult. So when we think about, you know, the, the stresses, meaning the how in life, like how am I going to accomplish this goal? 
if I have a reason why I'm doing it, meaning if I have a purpose, if I have an overall meaning, if I have a guiding light, an objective, um, all of a sudden that how becomes like it, it's not even a thing. I mean, I'm sure you could relate to this. You know, I, I need, I don't know, probably $6,000 a month in order to keep my family afloat. And I'll tell you something, man, I'll do whatever I got to do in order to get that money. You know, I will do whatever I have to do, work as hard as I have to work in order to be able to, to reach that goal. And the reason why is I know that there are people depending upon me. And these are people who I care very deeply about. So when you have that, that light, when you have that thing that kind of directs you, when you have that meaning, that purpose, stress like basically just falls out of the way. Yeah. Now, when it comes to finding meaning, how do you balance the, you know, having the family where you're able to extract that meaning from while still maintaining other pursuits? Because you have some people that try to give it all to the family and it works for them. And then you have others that try to get all their meaning from the family and it's just not enough. And they feel like they need something in addition to that. So how do you find kind of that balance between the two? You know, I, I think the balance is subjective to everyone. Like you said, we have different types of people, but I also think that's a fantastic question. I, I really think what we have to consider is that we should always be able to find things that, um, I don't know, that ultimately we could be very passionate about, very motivated for. So I, I think, yes, I mean, family is obviously very important, but, and I'll, I'll put it to you like this. You know, I think every man on this planet um, we, we have two, well, I guess I'll, I'll put it like this. Unfortunately, a lot of men on this planet are kind of force fed these very junk values, right? I, I frequently refer to them in therapy as the killer bees, right? So most men are, are kind of forced to take on these values. If it's called either the bedroom, the ball field or the billfold, right? So it's like, how many girls do you have? Um, what's your athletic prowess? And you know, how much money do you have? The bedroom, the ball field, the billfold. And Ultimately, these are junk values that leave, lead us to a place of, you know, a lot of insignificance. And I know I said, you know, what's your athletic prowess? But, you know, again, I think there's a very different, a, a big difference between being athletic and being physically healthy. You know, sure. physical health, I would definitely say, is not a junk value. That's a very important value because, I mean, you can't really do anything in life if you don't have that. But what I will say is if we're going to talk about how we replace those values with stuff that actually means, I think it boils down to two things. So our, our first value that we have to worry about that I think is very deeply indicated by our families are our relationships. You know, I always talk to people about like, you know, if you think about it, unfortunately, there's a good possibility that we could be dead for longer than we were ever alive for. And so when we do leave this world, the people who remember our impact, the people who remember who we were as individuals are obviously extremely precious to us. It even says that uh, in, in Judaism, it explains that, you know, our survivors, the people who survive us actually have a way of ensuring that our impact on the world continues, meaning it's very, very important to have very strong relationships in life. It's pretty hard to be successful without them. However, and this is kind of getting now to the answer, I think that's only half of it. I think the other piece of this boils down to legacy. So some people, they derive their legacy from their families, but I also think that legacy can be something that's very separate, meaning it could be a business. It could be a, uh, I don't know, just something creative that you've made. I mean, I, I could tell you one of the things that I love about also being a musician is that, you know, when I write and record music, that will likely outlive me. You know, your business will outlive you, God willing. And that's a very humbling thing for a person to recognize is that 
through creativity, we could begin building legacies and actually even get a taste of immortality. Yeah, I, I have a tough time reconciling that one only because I feel like if you zoom out enough, not many things matter with a capital M, you know, mm -hmm. and I think legacy starts to to dissolve a little bit. Um, I, I, I had heard that from Alex Hermosi and, and it was just really interesting. It was a fun thought experiment for me because you, I do think about that a lot, you know, in terms of the business and wanting it to carry on far beyond, you know, my years. But then I'm like, okay, like 10,000 years from now, like, does any of this really matter? And to, funny enough, it does help from a stress perspective. Do you know what I mean? Like when you just, yeah. when you say, totally. okay, like in 10,000 years, literally none of this matters. Well, but wait a second. But what if it does? What if literally 10,000 years from now, your, your gym, your business is so successful. It has helped so many people that it's beyond a household name. And it's like, and if you think about it, you know, the needs that you are meeting, the needs that you are meeting are human needs. And that's actually the thing that's really cool about both of our businesses. Like we are in the business of meeting basic human needs. Like without the things that we provide, humanity cannot progress. If you are not healthy mentally or physically, you're not going to live. You're not going to progress in life. You're not going to live very long. Right. So if you think about it, will it all matter 10,000 years from now? I mean, here's the thing. It's not absurd to say that it might. You know, yeah. I don't think, I mean, my God, how many philosophers thousands of years ago lived probably never thinking, oh yeah, my words are still going to be spoken about. I mean, you, you, you quoted Aristotle or something. Uh, it's been thousands of years and we still talk about this guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, wasn't what if, it, what if um, this podcast? I mean, you never know. Yeah. Marcus Aurelius to his, uh, you know, the meditations that wasn't even yeah. meant to be a book. It was this private journal that someone found after he had died. Like that's, that's even crazier to think about. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So again, and this is the important part. And, you know, something that uh, especially a lot of my rabbis impress upon me, we can never underestimate the power, the impact that we can make on people. That's the thing, because it's, it's actually interesting. You know, as a therapist, I'm, I'm 35. I've been doing this since I was 21 in various capacities. And it's super interesting how despite all of my experience, you know, and I'm, I'm good at reading human thought, emotion and behavior. Don't get me wrong. But there is so much research showing that actually therapists are terrible judges of their impact on people. And this is actually one of the things that I think fuels a lot of social anxieties. We, we have this belief that we know what our impact has been on people when in reality, I don't know if that's really something that most people can grasp. You know, how many times, you know, it, it's interesting, like when, we, when you talk to your clients, there have been plenty of times where it's like, Oh man, I, I asked them like, what has been the most meaningful part about working with me? And, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, you know, you told me this story or something like that. And sometimes they'll say to me, you know, Charles, actually, when you came on to session and you were really stressed out, but you still worked with me, like that really had an impact on me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, that wasn't an intervention. <laughs> that was me having a bad day, yeah. you know, but like we, we can never know what our true impact is. And I, I guess just being able to be humble enough to say that, even regardless of whether or not we know we're making an impact, still put ourselves out there to do so is important. I mean, think about it. We don't know who's going to listen to this podcast, but nevertheless, it's important to make because even if it impacts one person, is it not worth it? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So one thing I think uh, I want to make sure that we define and be able to kind of draw a line in the sand, which is what is the difference between stress and anxiety? You know, I'll be honest with you, I don't think there are many differences, but I, I would put it to you like this, you know, 
I, I think really they're they're pretty similar, if if not one of the same. You could only have anxiety. I I will even say they are one and the same as I think about this. You know, it, you cannot be anxious and you cannot have stress over things that you don't care about. Right. This is very important. We can only truly become stressed over things that we care about. That's the thing. Now, of course, every human being on this planet has some form of anxiety, right? We know that anxiety um, is any kind of uh, future-focused racing thought, right? If I am having any racing thoughts that are related to the future, that is anxiety. Conversely, um, you know, racing thoughts related to the past is more depressive in nature. But, you know, if, if you think about it, that's kind of what stress is also. We're only stressed about things, I would say, things to come, really. And so I, I would just say that, and by the way, you know, stress also, as, as you know, you and I both know, um, stress both has psychological and physical manifestations. You know, it's actually very interesting when we think about anxiety, people don't realize that anxiety impacts um, two big parts of the brain. So you have the racing thoughts anxiety, which is related more to the frontal lobe. But then you also have amygdala-based anxiety, which is really that muscle tension, the fluttering heartbeat, the knots in your stomach. Like, all of that stuff is amygdala-based, you know? And so if you think about it, like, that's where stress is hitting as well. So, I don't know. That's kind of how I would define it. I think the two are very, very similar. Okay. So would you say, though, that anxiety it tends to be more future-focused and stress probably is existing in this very moment? Well, I mean, here's the thing. It's, it's Anxiety is future-focused, but that's the point. It's future-focused, meaning it's existing in this moment as well. Mm. You know, it's like we're almost like imagine like standing here and looking out to the future. Like that's where you're experiencing your anxiety. That's also where I think people experience stress. I think it's pretty easy as I, as I consider this more to use the two terms interchangeably. Um, what I can say, though, and I mean, this is the thing that's actually really important. Um, all of these... Uh, stress, especially when we're going to talk about it on a psychological level, meaning when it's existing in our heads, um, it frequently manifests itself as thinking, right? As thoughts. So there's actually something, a, an exercise that I really like doing with people that is extremely effective and I think just puts things in a lot of perspective. This is a great tool. So I'm going to have you demonstrate for me. Um, so Derek, could you um, repeat after me? Just say, I'm an astronaut. I'm an astronaut. And say it again. I'm an astronaut. And now a third time. I'm an astronaut. Are you actually an astronaut? I am not. No, you just think you are. And like, that's the thing that's so interesting about stress and anxiety is that, you know, we could think that I, this business deal is never going to close. We could think that we're terrible people. We could think that nothing is going our way. Nothing will ever change. We could also think that we're baked potatoes. We could also think we're an astronaut. All of these statements, all of these thoughts, all of this stress is exactly the same. They are just thoughts. Right. If you think about it, a thought is completely innocuous. No one has ever died because of a thought, just a response to a thought. So I think one of the important take homes from this like little exercise is that our thoughts and our feelings are valid. Right. They're valid. You're allowed to say, I'm stressed about this. I'm worried about this. I'm concerned about this. Right. But nevertheless, these thoughts are not necessarily representative of what reality is. And that's the thing. So just because I happen to perceive something in a particular way, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be that way. And I think that's what causes a lot of stress. You know, I, I often ask this question, like, let's try to define, like, what is the origin of all stress? 
right? This is a, an important thing. Like if we, we know that if we attack the root of the problem, we could really make an impact. So the question is, where does all stress stem from? It's the unknown, right? Now, people will very frequently say fear, but the only reason why fear and stress are deeply related is because we are afraid that within the unknown lies some challenge, lies some difficulty that's going to be too uncomfortable for us to overcome. So what I would say is, is that, you know, if we, ha and by the way, this is kind of coming back, coming full circle to what we were talking about. So if we, if we recognize we need to approach the unknown in a way that, you know, basically isn't pathological in a way that isn't going to cause us distress, um, one of the things we have to do is we have to have confidence, right? Yeah. If you think about it, the cure, for, if, like if we're going to make this super simple, the, the cure for stress is confidence, Right. The cure for stress is confidence. This is extremely important to understand. Well, why. and this is probably why when yeah. you when you go through a similar scenario and you develop the skills, you know, by by that exposure, you mm -hmm. generally are stressed less by the experience. Right? Exactly. And as you develop that confidence of like, I can respond to this. I and even if I can't respond to this, there are people in my corner who might be able to respond to this that I could go talk to. Right. Yeah. Like, as long as you're able to establish that, like, you're set. So, you know, I mentioned to you in the beginning of this that, you know, I love to think about getting to stress and just mindfulness and things of that nature through the body. But, mm -hmm. you know, funny enough, like a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this are already doing a lot of those things and are working mm -hmm. with me or another coach because that just happens to be our audience. But what are some, you know, one of the things you said to me when I said that was like, you, well, that's one way to get to it, but there's, there's plenty of other ways you can do this. You know, what are some of those practical tips or what's some guidance that you would give to people that are looking for, you know, real life examples of things they can do? Absolutely. You know, I, I would say, just like we said, you know, stress is always going to be something that is, is kind of future focused. Like, I, I really think that's when we are when we're in this state where we're concerned about what's to come and the emotions that come with that presently, obviously that's going to manifest itself as stress. So there are many things that we could do to bring people back to the present moment, right? So these are called grounding exercises. So I, I could tell you there are a bunch of different ones that you could do. I mean, first of all, the point of meditation is to help you like focus in the present moment, to become present. That's the terminology that's constantly used. So Meditation in and of itself is a is a grounding exercise. Um, it's a grounding technique, and there are many different meditations to use. Um, I, I personally, if you go on YouTube, there are all kinds of sound meditations. There's like a shape meditation where you watch the shape grow as you inhale and exhale. Um, I actually think the meditation that's most effective um, for people is also the hardest one to actually do. So basically, what you do is you uh, like you inhale, you think of the number one, you breathe out. You inhale, you think of the number two, you breathe out. You breathe in, you think of the number three, you breathe out. You breathe in, you think of the number four, and then you breathe out. And then you start back at one again. And the goal of this meditation is to only think about the numbers. But as soon as you like set yourself up for that, as soon as you say, oh yeah, I'm only going to think about the numbers, every other thing on the planet is going to pop into your mind. So the goal that is established through this meditation is to be able to kind of build that muscle between automatic thoughts, which are popping into your mind involuntarily, and then redirecting yourself back to the mindful thoughts, to the deliberate thoughts. 
And if you think about it, like that's really what we need to do on a psychological level. It's the same thing as like if you're having a rough day, your mind is racing, but nevertheless, you have to perform, whether it be in the gym, in the workplace, at home. Like if your mind is racing, you have to be able and this is kind of like what soldiers do on the battlefield. It's like, yeah, I'm really scared, but I've got to put that aside so that I could actually fight and survive. One of the things that I found really interesting was that for myself, I am someone that listens to either audiobooks or podcasts basically Mm -hmm. relentlessly if I am in the car. And Mm -hmm. I would some of some of the days when I'm working at the facility, I have like a ton of floor hours. I'm like, you know, really, really on in terms of being a coach and working with clientele. And then, you know, I would be on my way home listening to a podcast and I'd get in the house and I would just have like this sensory dump and, and I realized that like the best thing for me was actually just to sit in silence because it allowed all of those thoughts to kind of hit inbox zero, if you will, to where like, if I got home, I found my mind would be like still racing. Like my body would be exhausted, but my mind would just be running. Um, You know, how much of this do you think falls on the shoulders of people not spending enough time just being bored and by themselves? And I mean, I think anything in excess could be detrimental. You know, I I think, unfortunately, when we're bored, like, it's interesting, there's research that shows sometimes having a a loose mind a running mind um, is actually a very positive thing. I mean, that forms the basis of creative thought. Um, it, It allows our brains to kind of relax a little bit. At the same time, that in excess could actually be very detrimental. Our minds could become very dark places because our brain's intent is to keep us alive and comfortable and will sometimes make threats out of things that ultimately are innocuous. So well, sure, I mean, yeah. Yes. I mean, if you think of somebody in like yeah. in in, in uh, solitary confinement, solitary. exactly, that's yeah. the ultimate boredom. Yeah, right. And here's the thing: I I would actually encourage people to be like, you know, are you in control? Like, okay, so we have our bodies; we we want to strengthen them, but a mind is something that's just as powerful. You know, like we we need to be able, like, if I'm sitting alone in a room, and if I'm sitting alone in a space, you know how this manifests itself. I'll tell you about my wife. Okay. I'm sure there are many people who could relate to this. My wife does not sit still ever. If she does, she starts feeling super guilty, right? She like, there are multiple times where I'll tell her, Hey, you know what? You're not feeling well. You worked outside in the yard a little bit too hard. Why don't you sit down? I'll make you a cup of tea. Five seconds later, she's in the kitchen. Do you need help? It's like, I'm boiling water. Okay. Like I don't need help. I know how to do that. You know, like I'm making dinner. Like I I know my way around the kitchen. Like I'm good, but she's constantly got to be moving because as soon as we stay still, all of a sudden our thoughts like creep up on us. You know, I think there are a lot of people who kind of avoid their own mind by just staying ridiculously busy. And I, unfortunately what that's going to lead to very clearly is burnout, you know? So being able to be brave enough to just sit with your mind is a very, very important thing. And, you know, coming back to uh, like grounding exercises, you know, there are a bunch of different things you could do even. So we'll talk about them physically and even psychologically. I mean, like, if your mind is really, really racing and you're having difficulty slowing it down, taking a freezing cold shower or putting ice against your stomach or even this is actually surprisingly effective. If you take a large like oblong ice cube and you put it in your mouth to a point where it becomes uncomfortable, it's going to have a direct impact on your thinking, which is actually really cool. It's the same reason why a hot cup of tea is actually very soothing to us because it is, in fact, so hot that it kind of shocks your mind a little bit, Mm. right? So all of these things work really well. There's another skill that I I really like teaching people. This is actually super fun to try. Keep your tongue still in your mouth as much as you can. Like, try not to let your tongue move. 
and you'll notice when you do that, like all your attention goes to your tongue. It come it, like the automatic thoughts almost stop. Right. It works pretty well. I could also tell you another thing to do is like you you can literally go outside and you know just look at the sky or any really nice view. Part of the reason why we we enjoy a good view is because ultimately when our brain is zoomed in on something, whether it be a computer monitor, a cell phone, something like that, um, our brain realizes it has to work, right? So having that big, broad field of vision actually relaxes the brain. So again, like telling people who are stressed out, get outside. I think this is why post-seasonal affective disorder exists. Yeah, it's because when it gets cold out, people are less likely to go outside. We have to go outside. We need that broad view that's going to make us feel better. Yeah, and I would imagine that this is much in the same of why people find exercise so beneficial. It's not just the endorphins and, um, you know, the dopamine and those sort of things. But it's also the fact that like when your heart rate's at 160 beats per minute, you're probably not thinking about the thing that was stressing you out earlier. Mm -hmm. And, and by the way, I mean, ultimately what's happening at that time. So like I said, we have a brain for two reasons. Our brain keeps us alive and it keeps us comfortable. Now, why is it that our brain likes comfort? Because we're in a, when we're in a comfortable state, our brain doesn't perceive that we're being threatened, right? Now, one of the things that's really interesting about exercise is it almost tricks the brain. Like it goes into like our most reptilian part, our most ancient part of our brain, um, which basically tricks the brain into thinking that we are in a state of danger. Like how our brain operates is very black and white. It's like safety, danger. It's as simple as that. And, and the thing is that's really interesting is that you're, you have something called a parasympathetic nervous system which basically is there so that when you are in a state of danger, meaning when you're running away from a threat, right? Exercising. What your parasympathetic nervous system is doing is it's shutting down. It's first of all, it's shutting down thinking. We'll talk about that in a sec, but it's, it's you know, doing different things to your body in order to conserve energy, right? Mm -hmm. One of those things that happens is it shuts down your thinking. Why? So that when your erroneous, you know, extraneous automatic thoughts are shut down, you're better able to focus on like getting away from the threat, right? Yeah. So that's part of the reason why we experience that sense of catharsis whenever we're exercising is because literally our parasympathetic nervous system is like, oh man, he's exercising. He's working hard. He may be trying to get out of danger. I got to get this guy focused. And it's so funny because, you know, like another really great part of exercise that my wife and I um, have just re-gotten into again um, is rock climbing. It's the most interesting thing that when you're 40 foot feet up on a rock wall, okay, believe me, your brain, and this is like, again, our most ancient reflexes, um, your brain is thinking about survival. It's not thinking about like, oh man, I, ha I have this report due at 7 p.m. Like, you know, you're, you're thinking about those basic things. And honestly, that's a very grounding thing for a person who's got a racing mind. Yeah. One of the things I find so fascinating about exercise is that if you were to take any of the correlates in terms of a snapshot in the middle of someone exercising and give them to a physician without context. So for instance, mm -hmm. diastolic blood pressure is increased, respiratory rate is increased. And anyone, a doctor were to look at these things, they would be like, that person needs to go to the emergency room immediately. Mm -hmm. Right. So while on a chronic scale, those things would obviously be bad, right? Somebody that comes in with, uh, you know, a, a severely increased blood pressure is going to be put on some sort of medication or put through some form of therapy. 
Whereas if it happens acutely, it's beneficial for the long term, you know, and I think this is interesting. I want to play with this a little bit because I'm sure stress to some degree works in the same. Like there's ways like there's got to be good stress and bad stress. Well, and I mean, if you think about it, anxiety and stress are actually excellent motivators. They're really, really good motivators. I mean, I, I think what ends up happening to us is like, you know, we that, look, there are two reasons people change. OK, it's either they recognize the benefits of doing so or they recognize that they don't have a choice. Right. Like that's kind of like these are our, the two you know, extremes of change. It's either I'm going to do this because I see the benefits or I'm going to be forced into a position where I don't have any other choice. Right. And if you think about it, that stress like is a very good motivating factor. And, you know, at the end of the day, okay, human beings always have to continue growing. We always have to. And when I say growing, I, I don't just mean in a physical sense. I mean, in a spiritual sense, in a psychological sense, we should always be striving and asking ourselves, like, what's next? I, I think a major part of like positive human functioning is being able to have something to look forward to, you know? So part of the way that we get to those goals is by having some anxiety about whether or not we're going to get there. That, and, and you're 100% right. When, when you have that small dose, that small push, just you know, at, the, at the perfect time, it's unbelievable how transformative that could be. Yeah. Now, one of the things I love about working with you, um, you know, aside from the fact that you're just a great teacher, is that I will come to you with a hypothesis and you will either say, that's really interesting. Let's talk about that. Or like, Derek, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So I want to run one by you because I think sure. that it, it's relevant to this conversation. So um, as you're aware in the audiences, because I've talked about it on a number of occasions, like I stopped drinking as soon as I found out my wife was pregnant. And at the very least, I'm staying in solidarity with her for the nine months. And I'm sure it's going to push beyond that. Um, but one of the things that I think everyone recognizes when they take long periods of time off is just like how much they would associate drinking with having fun. So, you know, when they would go out to an outing, it was like, you'd be telling themselves, I'm looking forward to the outing, but really you were just looking forward to having some drinks. And the moment you remove the drinks, you convince yourself that it's not fun anymore. And I think that there is this bridge that can be made between that and the way that people view stress as it relates to productivity. In other words, if I'm not stressed, I wasn't productive. Like people have a hard time believing that they can be productive without the stress present. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, that's I, I feel like that's kind of what we're talking about when we say like, yeah, I'm not going to change unless I'm absolutely forced to, you know, and that actually is a very unfortunate truth in life. I mean, I, I think the it's very, you know, the human brain is very associative, right? We are always making associations. And I, I think it's very interesting that. OK, so I'll, I'll tell you this. My my wife is a therapist also. We have a wonderful marriage. We don't actually talk to each other. We just analyze each other. I wake up in the morning. I turn to her. I'm like, I know how you are, but how am I, right? Um, <laughs> these are the jokes that I repeat to literally everyone. And I'm a dad. I'm allowed to get away with this. But, you know, my, my wife hates doing therapy. She really wants to just stick with, like, the business side of practice. And, you know, her anxiety around doing therapy is actually kind of brilliant. She says to me all the time, like, you know, any problem imaginable can come through our doors as therapists. So how are we supposed to know all the answers? And if you think about it, it boils down to like one thing and one thing only. It boils down to needs. All human beings have the same needs. We know this from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There are many theories around this. 
But all human beings have the same needs. And really, it's interesting because I think the other part of being a therapist that's so important is that we recognize that all behavior has a motivation, right? So coming back to like what you're talking about, like in any given situation, when I choose to behave a particular way, I need to have a logical reason why I am doing that behavior. If I go to any client and I say to them, well, why are you doing that? There needs to be a logical answer that comes. And the logical answer can't just be, well, uh, because. Like it doesn't work like that, okay? So it's like if you if you are pushing yourself to like, I don't know, to make some kind of change. If you, you know, if you're, and by the way, there are a lot of people who work very well in the 23rd hour, you know, at the same time, I, I would also say that it's, it's really important for people to kind of recognize that before they get stressed, we could also do this crazy thing. It's called being proactive, right? It's actually, instead of operating from a place of survival, it's operating from a place of thriving. It's being able to say, you know what? I'm in fact so comfortable that right, right now that why shouldn't I push myself farther? All the pieces are in place. I don't have to like, you know, basically say, man, if I don't do this, that's it. I'm in trouble. You know, we should be able to, like, I, I often tell my clients in their 20s, I see this especially with clients in their 20s, where the 20s, if you think about it, are very chaotic, right? They're very chaotic. We are making decisions in our 20s that most of the time will impact us for the rest of our lives. We're picking careers. We're picking partners. Um, it's, it's very intense. 20s are really hard. I call it the quarter life crisis, right? It's, it's a very hard time of life. But our goal through that period is to get us to a place of somewhat of stability and consistency, right? Now, here's the thing. People get very used to being in crisis. People get very used to being in crisis. But if I could operate from a perspective of I don't need to be in crisis, I could actually do something because I see it's the right thing. I could do something because I, I know that, you know, the potential benefits coming to me from doing this far outweigh the cost of making the change. Like, that's really what thriving is, be being able to make change without being forced into it. Like, that's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, it's a shame that most people only wait until stress kicks in. But I, I would also say that if we're able to get to a, a space where we're stable enough to be proactive, that's unbelievable. You know, like that's the best to be honest with you. Yeah. My, my general manager always says to me a quote from the show Archer, where he says, things mm -hmm. tend to work out for me, you know, and, and I, I, I love it's so simple, but I love that because I think that the ability to recognize that things generally go well for you and they're probably going to continue to go well for you, whether or not the stress continues to tag along for the ride is a really important realization. I feel like if you can find that sweet spot, that right there is is the good stuff. Well, that's confidence. You know? Like that's that's literally what we're what we're aiming for. We're aiming to for a way to be able to be confident in ourselves. And this confidence is like, you know, I always tell my anxious and stressed patients like there's a great mantra. There's a really good mantra that people should repeat, okay? And it's in two phases, okay? The first part is I don't know. Just like we spoke about earlier, right? We don't know. All, all anxiety, all stress stems from a level of the unknown, right? We don't know when it's going to get done, how it's going to get done, whether or not it's going to be good enough, et cetera. There's always going to be some level of unknown. So the best thing to do is just admit, I don't know. But the second part of the mantra is, I'll figure it out, right? Because one way or the other, like Jordan Peterson very frequently uh, states, like you're on this roller coaster of life, regardless of whether or not you want to be, Okay. Like, you're going to have to deal with it. You don't have a choice. 
right? There's no choice. Like whatever it is that you're stressed out about, like ultimately you are, you could avoid it a million different ways. You could drink yourself into oblivion. You could hide in your room. It's not going to change. It's still there. You're on that roller coaster. You are going to head in that direction. Yeah. And so I the think smartest it's, thing, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's recognizing that the obstacle or, or the thing in the way of the obstacle is the obstacle. Yes. Yes, that's very stoic, but yes, that's absolutely right, okay? <laughs> that that actually, yeah, that that's like Marcus Aurelius all over it, okay? Like, that's that's absolutely correct. Like, what, what often is the obstacle in the way becomes the way, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I love that. You're, you're absolutely right about that. And I, I really think that, you know, as people just recognize, like, one way or the other, I'm going to have to figure it out, right? I don't know, but I'm going to figure out, like, it, just being able to recognize that that is the ultimate you know, confident statement. Well, and to draw know? further into that analogy I made about, about drinking at outings, it's like everyone knows the experience of having too many drinks and waking up the next day and then swearing you're never going to do it again and then forgetting three days later and repeating it the following weekend, right? We've all been through that a number of times. And I think to the same degree, we've all been through the experience of stressing out about something and believing it's going to be far worse than it is and then taking action and then realizing that it was actually trivial compared to what we thought. And then we forget that that happened, you know, and then the next mm -hmm. thing comes up and once again, we're like, this is going to be terrible. Mm -hmm. And I, I will tell you this, and I think what we're now talking about is attitude, you know, I, it's, it's unbelievable how like one of the things that we always have, like, I'll, I'll tell you, um, there, there's just a beautiful concept that like, okay, so in, in Judaism, we say every morning, a, a, there's a tradition, you say a hundred blessings to God, right? So one of the blessings is we say, uh, thank you, God, for not making me a slave, right? Like that's one of the things that, that we thank God for. And, you know, there's a story about, you know, there was a, a Jewish guy who was a slave, in fact. And, um, you know, he found also there was another man who was pretty religious, uh, another religious Jew who was enslaved with him. And uh, basically says to him, like, should I even say this blessing? And the other guy responds, look, as long as you're able to say that blessing, you're not a slave. Meaning it's all about attitude. It's all about your perspective. You know, if, if you're able to kind of recognize, like, look, these things are going to happen. You know, it is what it is. I'm going to roll with it. There's tremendous power in that. Yeah, it reminds me of the, there, there's, I think this was a meme. There was like a dad or a kid that was like, dad, are we poor? And he was like, no, son, we're broke. Uh, mm -hmm. Like poor is a mindset. Yeah. We don't have yeah. something along those lines. Like we don't have money. We're broke, but we're never poor. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think really as, as people kind of internalize that, as people kind of recognize, like you have the ability to author your life any way that you want. And it's funny because most, because of our brains, again, being very protective of our well-being, like our brains love being very pessimistic, right? But ultimately that doesn't feel very good. So if you think about it, and I, I tell people this very frequently, people are black and white in their thinking. It's either going to go good or it's going to go bad. I think a much smarter approach and a, a much more realistic approach in terms of our attitudes is to try to come up with, come up with five different outcomes, not just two. Try to come up with multiple different outcomes. Try to have an understanding that there are a variety of different outcomes. And, you know, it seems to be that, you know, I'll, I'll put it like this. It seems that faith, pleasure, and freedom are all very tied to one another. This is what Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, kind of explains, that faith, pleasure, and freedom are deeply tied. And I, I really think that as we kind of recognize with faith that there are so many different outcomes, 
that ultimately we can't know, we just have to trust. There's a tremendous amount of freedom that comes from that. You know, sometimes there, there is a freedom in recognizing that, and I guess this is what true freedom is, is just recognizing all the opportunities, all the different outcomes that do exist, you know, instead of just snapping to like the two we happen to come up with on a whim because we're feeling stressed out. Yeah. One of the things I ask myself frequently is like, what beliefs do you have that if you didn't have would make a huge difference? You know, and I think that's, it's just like an interesting way to kind of like investigate your mind. Um, because at the end of the day, like, I'm sure, you know, you see this far more than I do, but you probably have people that have been believing something that is incorrect for decades. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, the thing is, is again, our beliefs are just thoughts, man. And I mean, sure, there could be, there could be some evidence behind them, of course, but very frequently do we, very infrequently, I should say, do we realize the the full picture, you know? Very infrequently are we able to see the the whole picture and how all the parts come together. Um, very frequently, the only part of our perception is like what's before us. We don't understand how everything kind of has has formed together to you know build bigger conclusions than what we're witnessing. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, all all I could tell you is that when when people are able to um, just kind of see the bigger picture, there is there is a lot of like healing that comes from that. And I think letting go of these thoughts. Um, is is a big part of it because ultimately they're just thoughts. You know, our beliefs, thank God, are able to change. We are able to change our minds. And, you know, that mental flexibility really allows for a lot of growth. Now, speaking of healing, um, what do you say to anyone that is on the fence about wanting to get a therapist? I, I mean, I'll tell you this. I, I think in, in any decision that we're going to make in life, right, it's a cost-benefit analysis. You know, I, I think first and foremost, if you are going to see a therapist, I think what people are just, you know, stressed out about or anxious about is that uh, they're going to have a bad experience. And, you know, there's a very simple solution to that. If you meet with a therapist twice and you don't like get a good vibe from them, don't continue seeing them. Thank God there are thousands of us. OK, there, there are a lot of therapists out there. Um, you just need to find a person who really gels with you. I think finding a therapist is kind of like finding a soulmate. You just need to find that person who you feel very comfortable with, who you trust, who know who you know has your best uh, interests in mind. Um, I think if you're able to find someone like that, and they are definitely out there, um, it's a great thing. And I, I would also say, remember, you know, when people are debating whether or not they need a therapist, you know, what it really boils down to is how effectively are we moving towards change or acceptance in our lives? If, you know, there there's a big difference. You know, I, I believe the root of all success is consistency. But I also think that consistency and complacency are very, very similar entities, right? So I think the difference being is that consistency is something challenging. It's something that we push ourselves towards. Whereas complacency is like things have become easy for us. And sometimes when that happens, we really need a guide. We need someone to just be like, okay, you know what? I've taken it this far. Now what? And a therapist is a great person to turn for that. Yeah. One of the things I always remind our coaches is that all we're doing is trying to find creative ways to help people stay accountable to the basics, you know, and Absolutely. I think the same is very true for therapy, right? It's easy. It's easy to get distracted and you have to kind of continue to reel people in and find creative ways to be able to relate to people on a deeper level so that they have buy-in with you. Yeah. And I would just say, I mean, sometimes the best thing is even if you've never been to therapy before, Sometimes it's really nice to just have a different perspective. You vent about what it is that you're going through, and you have a pretty unbiased perspective 
of you know some that's being offered to you that you're paying for and sometimes within that perspective lies some wisdom that you might have looked over that you might have overlooked and and you know not considered before yeah and so it's that free in from and of itself i think yeah it's invaluable it, well it's and it's free from judgment right like like at the end of the Absolutely. day i think a lot of times people either don't have the friend groups necessary to be able to vent to or for whatever reason don't feel comfortable venting to their closest friend maybe the the situation at hand is is too close for comfort and it's like that for me has always been the one of the main reasons of maintaining a therapist it's just that it's yeah. somebody that i can talk to free of judgment that's going to give me an objective perspective but also not you know if i say something that's you know a little out off putting or is you know slightly out of character I, I'm not worried about this coming back and, and biting me, you know, and it's right. like, you can be your true self, you know, you speak to authenticity. And I think sometimes, you know, being your authentic selves, self means being occasionally irrational, you know, <laughs> because like there's, there's balance in that, you know, it's like, cause you, there's like an immediate We're recognition human. when you're kind of going through all your thoughts of like, okay, that thought is ridiculous. Or this thought was right on par with how I want to think about this particular issue. Absolutely. And again, I mean, you hit it out of the park. I, I really think that um, the, you know, therapists are trained to practice something called unconditional positive regard, which means even if I disagree with you, right, which I can, by the way, and I'll absolutely tell a person that I disagree with them, but I'm also never going to shame them for that. Meaning you're going to get positive regard from me. I, I'm going to recognize always that everything you present to me, you have positive intentions behind even if you are irrational, I, that doesn't speak to you as a negative person. That just speaks to you being a human being, you know, that we're not perfect. And you're okay with that. And you're right. I mean, in therapy, the ideal is, and I, I would say this to all of my clients, that really the only thing a person needs to bring with them to therapy is like absolute, the sincerest version of their honesty. You know, you have to be able to feel so comfortable in, in front of a therapist that you could basically say anything to them. And we're trained to be able to contain this, you know, like that's our job. Our job as therapists is to be able to like take anything that you're saying to us, no matter how traumatic, how terrible, whatever, and just say, okay, I could sit with that. And, and to be honest with you, for most of us, myself included, um, it's a pleasure. You know, I, I feel very honored that I get to hear people's innermost secrets. Um, and it's, it's great because you know, some people have like Gaydar or me, I have Judar, but I think the, the type <laughs> of, of Dar, like the type of radar that we need to really have in life is good person Dar. And when you see a person at their most vulnerable, it's so easy to just find humanity in people. You know, it's so beautiful to be able to see a person at their most, in their most raw state and just recognize just like what their beauty is. The fact that you're able to bear yourself that sincerely it's magnificent, you know, and something that I think most therapists feel very privileged to, to witness and, and join part of. Well, I think that is a perfect end note. There's yeah. so much more I would love to talk to you about, but we'll be on here for hours. So I will 1000% <laughs> have you on again. Well, Charles, absolutely. thanks so much for coming on again. Um, tell people where they can learn more about you. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to learn more about my private practice, uh, that's www.talktocharlie.net, C-H-A-R-L-I-E.net. And um, if you want to hear more about like my music, it's hardcharlie.com. My group practice is um, shalvapsychotherapy.com. So shalva is S-H-A-L-V-A. Um, so shalva psychotherapy is the group practice, and we're all over the United States. We will be very soon. 
Um, and then I'm also building a website that is called uh, toolstotriumph.com, where basically there are going to be a bunch of online classes where um, there's going to be a course about overcoming anxiety, overcoming depression, um, you know, dealing with addictions, everything you didn't learn in rehab, um, how to heal your marriage. And my personal favorite class that I'm also working on a book for um, is called How to Act Like a Great Therapist, um, where basically I'm teaching people how do we just be better listeners um, and be better engaged to the people um, who seek us out in life. But um, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Huge pleasure. Well, hey, thank you so much and, for uh, yeah, doing man. everything you do. And, and I, I know that uh, you put a lot of time and energy behind everything that you do. So I'm sure all of those courses are going to be nothing short of amazing. Awesome. Well, cool. thank you very much. Thanks so much for coming on. Yep. Thank you again for jumping on the podcast today. I just want to take a quick second to remind you that we post a lot of free and helpful content on our social media pages. You can find us at Hardbat Athletics on Instagram and Facebook and visit our website at www.hardbatathletics.com to learn more about what we do at our facility. Let's keep raising the standard together.